everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. Today is Friday, so we are going to talk about Fantastic Fellas Friday. Now, let me just give you a little bit of warning in advance. <clears throat> the young man that we are going to talk about is very controversy, co- controversial, and you may or may not agree with his thinking. But as I always say on this show, we're about social, cultural, and experiences bringing knowledge to those unfamiliar and to give people information. And it's always up to you to do your research and you can agree or disagree. And that's all right. Under the First Amendment, I like people to give me subjects that they feel are important, not just to my community and my culture, but as I always say, if it affects my community and my culture, it really will eventually affect yours. So with that being said, this is going to be a heated and extended version. This is going to be my last Fantastic Fellows Friday until May. I'm going to take the month of April off. So this is going to get a little heated and it's going to, I'm sure, go past 30 minutes. So what I like to do is find people's personal biography of themselves, what they have to say of who they are and read it word for word and not give my opinion on who they are, especially if I'm not familiar with the person. So what I did is I went on this gentleman's website And the gentleman I am talking about is Dr. Umar Johnson. And you can go to drumarjohnson.com, which is where I went to get his bio. So I want to read his bio. And then, like I said, this was sent to me by a close friend who's like a brother to me. He actually sent me, which you're going to hear just the opening part of an interview that Dr. Johnson did with Nick Cannon on his podcast, Cannon's Class. And this was done a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, at Howard University, but you all can check that. And also, um, he did he did a lot of interviews. There's a lot of video on this man, and um, I didn't want to be too overwhelming, but he did an interview on The Breakfast Club, which, according to Roland Martin, got a lot of uh, backlash on what we call Black Twitter. And so what I decided to do, instead of going back and forth to the different shows, there was a heated, heated conversation that gives you another idea of how Dr. Johnson thinks regarding um, our community. And it was about 18 minutes and it was so intense and so um, relevant as far as I'm concerned. I decided to record Roland's entire 18 minute interview and I want you guys to listen to it. And it was really interesting to see the different um, opinions of everyone that's talking is African-American. It was really uh, interesting to see that. And I'll talk about that at the end. So let me just start off before I let you hear any audio in his own voice with his description on his webpage of who he is. And it says about Dr. Johnson, strive for perseverance deliver excellence. And I definitely agree with that for any race. Um, 
But it says Dr. Umar Johnson is a doctor of clinical psychology and certified school psychologist who is considered an expert on the mental health of African and African-American children. Dr. Umar, as he is known to friends, is a paternal kinsman. Uh, uh, this Okay, you'll hear more about this too. To abolish uh, uh, abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Now, ironically, this is on his webpage, and this comes up in the interview, so you'll hear that later. And the late Bishop Alexander Wayman, seventh bishop of the AME for Maryland's Eastern Shore. Dr. Uman is Umar is founder and lead tour guide for the unapologetically African Black College and Consciousness Tour. Okay. For 11, okay, my printer acted up on me. Well, um, anyway, that's what he does, which exposes them to the great historical black college tradition within the context of visiting and learning about black colleges. And it, and they said that, excuse me, it helped shape the global African struggle for freedom and independence. He said that this is a tour that's held annually two weeks of J- July. It goes on to say the Prince of Pan-Africanism hosts a free regular weekly black parent teleconference every Tuesday morning. Didn't know that. He gives free educational and mental health consultations to community members in order to help them better advocate. Um, It's so much. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to figure out how I want to read this without being too forward. But, you know. I want you guys to really read his uh, bio. And it says he's one of the most recognized social scientists and pan-Africanists of the 21st century. So he has talked about building a school. And this is in his bio, too. It says he's currently working on building his new school. Now, that comes up in this interview. And I don't know how recently this has been updated. I just printed it out. Uh, today because I wanted to do it for today's show but I want you guys to go to his website and check out who he says he is now the funny thing about that something also came up that was interesting and it's not being negative I'm just putting what's out there someone named Cassie Owens uh, from the Inquirer she did a uh, article on him that says popular speaker Omar Johnson faces fines over lack of psychology license. I'm just going to throw that out there because I have to. Um, I'm not taking no credit away from him because I don't know anything about him until I just did this research. So I don't know what that's about, but I think that uh, that's a good read. I just wanted to bring that up because... You know, in her article, she's saying that uh, the State Bureau of Professional and Occupational Affairs has charged him, known as Dr. Umar, with portraying himself on his website as a psychologist who practices counseling services without a state license to do either. And if that is proved, the board could levy fines and order Johnson to pay for the cost of the investigation. Now, keep in mind, this is an article that I just found, and this was done in 2018. And I have to put it out there because if you're like me and you're looking for 
information on them. You're going to see this. So I tried to be fair and put everything out there. Now, after you listen to this interview with Roland Martin, I am guessing that it will conclude that Dr. Johnson is still Dr. Johnson. And it's just so much out there. I, I didn't even go. I'm just reading what's out there, good and bad. But I found an article, being from Pittsburgh, if I see something that's from a writer at the Pittsburgh Courier, I like to also acknowledge them. So a person named Ebony Chapel from the New Pittsburgh Courier, she had wrote an article saying, and this is in March 2017, that she attended and Dr. Omar Johnson lecture, and here was her thoughts. And this is how she starts it out. She says, I attended my first Dr. Umar Johnson lecture. It was interesting to say the least. For those who are unaware, Johnson, known as the Prince of Pan-Africanism, is a lecturer and self-appointed expert on mental health. Now, that's how she starts it off. And I was kind of concerned that she called him self-appointed expert. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. I'm not really sure if that is something that can be validated as self-appointing or is he the expert? I'm not really sure. So I'm just reading parts of her, her article. She said, well, she criticizes them because she said <laughs> after showing up nearly an hour late, he stepped up on the stage to rousing applause. So I'm guessing she's kind of like letting us know that he didn't show up on time. And there's always different reasons why people are late. So hopefully that that is what happened. While his lecture had a couple gems, namely his rebuke of the American education system and its treatment of children of color, as well as a pretty spot-on breakdown of how black people have been unjustly and systematically shut out of economic advancement through, re through redlining, gentrification, and the like. A fair amount of it was disappointing. Hmm. Okay, so I'm bringing you a different side. And she says that someone who has listened to him before knows some of his most outrageous statements were par for the course. And then she gives a couple examples of um, what was uh, outrageous. I'm going to just give you one of them. Johnson stated that black people, or quote, sun people, as he called them, lived in a land of complete and utter harmony similar to Eden before white people, or as he called them, quote, ice people, walked their hairy, barbaric, cannibalistic selves down to Africa and ruined everything while colonism did deal an awful blow to the continent of Africa, this simplistic view of a fairy tale land is incorrect. War, corruption, and slavery in some form or another existed on the continent well before this period in history. And that's what she uses as an example of what she calls his most outrageous statements. She says, I am of the opinion that we cannot accept hatred in any form toward anyone. It is a detriment to us and serves no productive purpose. 
Black gay youths are consistently victims of violence in their homes, schools, and places of worship. Trans women of color are also being slaughtered, and their murders are often neglected not only by the police and investigators. These crimes often go unsolved, but also by our community. She goes on to say the lecture, which was titled 21st Century African Holocaust, The End of Racial Justice for Blacks and What We Must Do Now, lasted over two hours and was all over the place. In all, I took him to be a glittering balloon, ooh, speckled with brilliance, but ultimately filled with a lot of hot air. Now, that's an interesting comment. This is a person who felt that um, maybe his lecture was a little extreme. I, as I mentioned, I always give my disclaimer. I am totally unfamiliar with him. I'm just going by the research that I found. Now, she ends her article and she says, while on one hand, I applaud some of his efforts, I cannot ignore that his message was full of many of the inaccuracies and hateful statements that, pre that pervade much of the Pan-African movement. I also have concerns of his legitimacy, his credentials as a school psychologist, doctor of psychology, and school principal have yet to be confirmed. The receipts, as far as I can tell, are non-existent. His fundraisers to open the aforementioned academies have been scrutinized, as many donors claim to have been defrauded. There are entire websites and social media pages dedicated to proving this man is a well-spoken liar. And even one local business owner shared with me his own shysty Dr. Umar story. Now, keep in mind, this is, you. if you got any comments about this article, go to at Ebony the Writer. That's her, hat, um, her, I don't know if that's her Twitter or it's at Ebony the Writer. So whatever that is, I don't know if that's Instagram or Twitter. I'm just reading exactly what she wrote as a person in 2017 who attended one of his lectures. As I always say, do your own research. And so with those things being said, I want to play audio from the introduction of him from Nick Cannon's podcast Cannon's class, and then the heated discussion on Roland Martin's show with him and three other African-American panelists, and they are talking about these same topics that I just read from the different articles. So without further ado, I want you guys to listen to first the introduction of this man that uh, Nick Cannon introduces on his show. So Check out Dr. Umar Johnson on the Nick Cannon Show first. All right. Class is in session once again, and I am honored and privileged uh, to be in the presence of someone I've been so anxious to speak with and learn from and dive in, create some discourse. Uh, doctor of clinical psychology and certified school psychologist, activist, lecturer, leader, teacher, professor, the list goes on, uh, author of Psychoacademic Holocaust, The Special Education and ADHD Wars Against Black Boys, uh, the one and only Dr. Umar Johnson, my brother. He's in black power. Good to see you, man. Yes, Come on, sir. man. Yes, we do, sir. Had to get to it. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. We talked about it for uh, some time, man. I've mm -hmm. you know, been a fan 
uh, of your wisdom and your knowledge and your movement uh, and your outspokenness. You yes, know sir. what I mean? Uh, on so many different platforms, I've seen you go toe to toe, head to head with with the best, and yes, um, and really just being unapologetic and uh, as you know, you call it unapologetically African. Yes, and, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, where did that come from? Where does that like ultimately like this? This drive to to feed our people and to be so strong uh, in in your in your rhetoric. When I was in the uh, third grade, we lived in North Carolina. My father was in the Marine Corps. Okay, and it was in North Carolina that I decided I wanted to be a psychologist. Okay, I was the oldest boy, didn't have an older brother. Right. So I said I wanted to be the older brother that other children could talk to. Right. If right. They had problems. Got it. So okay. when we moved back to Philadelphia. Mead Elementary School, which is in the heart of North Philly, the ghetto. Yeah. We had a black history class, okay. which was mandatory, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought black history was required because mm -hmm. it was for us. Right, right. So our black history teacher was a sister by the name of Mrs. Green. And Mrs. Green really planted in us a love for self and a love for knowledge of self. So in many respects... I am an example of what happens when you're taught who you are at an early age. Mm. So fourth and fifth grade was black history. That was elementary school. But then right around the corner was the Philadelphia division of Marcus Garvey's UNIA. Okay. Okay. And so when I graduated from college, I joined the Garvey movement. And it was at the Garvey movement where the elders continued to plant that seed that was originally inculcated by Mrs. Green around the corner, but almost 20 years earlier. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a true product of the political struggle of North Philadelphia. Right. Um, and being a school psychologist was a unique caveat to the freedom struggle because there were no other black male school psychologists in the freedom struggle. Right, right. So the elders at the Garvey movement in Philadelphia, Sunday mass meetings, which they've been holding since Garvey started the organization in Jamaica, 1914, Sundays at three o'clock, right. over a hundred years now. Wow. So they would always ask me to stand up and talk about what school psychologists do. Right. Really because there was no other items on the agenda. So I was filler. Yeah. I was the only young member and I was filler. So I would get up and talk about Ritalin, Adderall, ADHD, the learning disabilities, autism. A lot of people hadn't heard of school psychology. Yeah. Okay. So it was my job to help educate them on that. And then people would come to the meetings and they would just start asking me to come speak other places. Yeah. Would you mind coming to my black history program, my university, my community college? Would you pop in on my Kwanzaa celebration? So literally it was word of mouth yeah. that kind of got me started, but it all began with the Garvey movement. The unapologetically African movement was something I began back in 20, I want to say 2012, 2013. And I started that once again, a spinoff from Garveyism that teaches black pride, love of self, not a hate for no one else, but an appreciation for who we are, our uniqueness. Right. And in being a psychologist, being a school psychologist and studying African behavior, particularly when we get around other cultural groups, yeah. I saw that we began to shy away from who we were. Right. We began to imitate something that we were not. We felt ashamed of our hair, our skin, the way we walk, talk, our food. Right. And I'm like, are you kidding? Almost 400 years since we've been here under white oppression. 
Right. We've been here longer, but under white oppression, under this government, 400 years, and we're still afraid to be who we are. Right. So I came up with unapologetically African to say that we have a right to exist, we have a right to our uniqueness, and we have a right to push and proliferate our own unique African cultural contribution to human experience. Right. So what do you think the moment was, or, or the, the movement, uh, was where the notoriety came nationally and globally? What was that? What, uh, what that, set it off? That set off. In 2010, I was invited to come to Chicago to do a public access television interview mm -hmm. on Chicago's public access network. And um, a brother called me up. He said, listen, somebody just sent me an article you wrote on the school to prison pipeline. It was powerful. I need you to come up here. I can't get you up here. But if you can get up here, we can make this happen. Right. So I said, Chicago, that's the second largest black city. I got to handle this. Yeah. So I went up there. We did the interview. And it's amazing. It's interesting how destiny works because he only had one copy of the DVD of the interview. Yeah. And I said, I need a copy of that. I yeah. just needed a copy. I didn't know why, but I said, I needed a copy of that. He said, this is my only one. But he said, you know what? I'm going to give it to you because I can get another one next week. Yeah. So he gave me that DVD. Had he not given me that DVD, we may not even be here now because what happens is three weeks later, I speak in New York City for the first time, Harlem. Right. Now, I've spoken in New York before, but it was strictly for the Garvey movement, never a public lecture of my own. Right. So at the National Black Theater, 125th and 5th, I brought copies of the Chicago interview. Mm. So you see, these are the yeah, two yeah, yeah, yeah. largest black cities. Right. And so when it comes to my rise within black consciousness, I really have to hang my hat on the support I got from New York City and Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to stop that. I'm not going to play the whole interview because it's really long. But I wanted to give the introduction on what I found in the search for Dr. Johnson. And as I mentioned, the dates were 2017, 2018. And I found this article that said it was done, excuse me, <clears throat> five months ago. So I wanted to play that so you guys could hear in his own words how he became famous, and what he's about. Now, I have to admit, a lot of the things I just heard him say were very intriguing to me because it is a true statement in my experience. I only can speak about my experience, but I've had these conversations with a lot of my African-American friends, especially those who work in corporate America. In my experience, we are two different people, and that is kind of sad. We cannot talk the way we normally talk when we go into corporate America because they will look at us as unprofessional and ghetto. Now, we can have a Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, Brown. We can go on and on with the Ivy League schools. We can have 900 degrees from all them schools, and they will still consider us ghetto if we talk the way we talk once we leave the building. And I can say that personally, I've experienced it. I remember at my law firm, I wanted to do something that I had never saw. And I decided to not only come to work in a prestigious international law firm with braids in my hair, I took it to a whole nother level. I wore it was one of the most beautiful dresses I've ever seen, a kente cloth dress. Now, if you know about the history of Africa and the kente cloth, I had, I found a dress that was, I thought was beautiful, kente cloth. So I wore it 
and I w got my hair braided up and I went into the office and I just want to share my experience. Now, at the time, our chief HR officer was from England and she and I were very close and we actually started at the firm a month apart. I came a month before her and we got really close because when she entered the administrative meeting of her team, she noticed that there was only one black person in the whole room and there had to be at least 20 of us at that time in the room. So that happened to be me. So I always tell her God knew what he was doing. He needed that person that was willing to be honest and speak up about the differences that they thought uh, they were seeing in such a prestigious place. So we would always talk about racism and change and what we can do. And I'll never forget it. The associate director of HR happened to be African-American and she was furious with me when I came to work that day because we had a meeting. So I definitely wanted to wear it in a meeting. I'm the only black in the room. She wasn't even in the room. And um, she she heard about it. Everybody loved the outfit and thought it was so cool. And she called me to her office. And the thing that hurt me the most is not only because she was African-American and brown, dark-skinned at that, but a sorority sister. I was very surprised because we were only two blacks all in the whole mix of administration, the only two. So I was really surprised that she called me into her office and told me how embarrassing I was to her for coming to work looking like that. And I asked her why was she embarrassed? Because the thing that was so cool, the, the, the braids were on point. I even, I'm not a makeup person, but I had my face all made up. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I looked at really, really nice and professional. And I'm telling you, the white people just loved it. And they was like, oh my God, can I touch? You know how that goes. And I was so hurt that she told me, she, she told me to go home to figure out how I'm going to change. It was on a Friday, figure out over the weekend how I'm going to change my hair and don't ever come back in there dressed like that. Well, to my surprise, I went to the chief and told her what happened and she had just the opposite <laughs> uh, opinion of it. She loved it, told me don't go nowhere. Um, you know, this is going to be the beginning of a lot of positive things. And to make a long story short, she, I, and two other former employees created our diversity program and our law firm. And a lot of people don't even know this story, but those who were around then, they do. And um, it was really on point when he was talking about how we have to change to be accepted in uh, outside our home. And it was making people forget, as they claim, that uh, where we came from and the pride that we should have as being black people. And so I just needed to mention that because what he's saying in this beginning of this interview, I, and I only can speak for myself, personally agree with a lot of it. In spite of what is being said later in the interview that he is going to do with Roland Martin, which you are about to listen to shortly, I just needed to make those comments because I can 100%, and I do mean 100%, relate to it. So what I want you guys to do is listen to the interview that he does with Roland Martin. Sorry about that. And we'll talk about it at the end. Our 
great folks. Dr. Umar Johnson recently was on uh, 105.1 FM out of New York, The Breakfast Club with DJ Envy, Angela Yee, and Charlemagne the God. During the interview, Johnson talked about a whole range of issues that led to him uh, being the talk of black Twitter last week. Uh, and a lot of people were questioning his education, educational credentials. Now, people ask me, what can we expect from a Donald Trump White House for black America? And the answer is real simple. You can expect exactly what you got from a Obama White House. Absolutely nothing. Black people know they're not American, but they will fight like hell to protect that identity because they don't want to be identified with who they really are. And that's being African. As long as you have a skill, you can always feed your family. But if all you got is college degrees, you might end up in an unemployment line. I'm a psychologist. Ain't too many black people running around looking for a psychologist to reveal all the skeletons in their closet. All right, folks, uh, joining us right now, Dr. Umar Johnson. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thank uh, you. First and foremost, um, um, it, it was amazing looking at this whole reaction. I mean, I'm sitting here, uh, you know, again, people asking all kinds of questions. Things are blowing up. Uh, and so many people jumped on saying he's not a real doctor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh where did you graduate from and you got your Ph.D.? Mm-hmm. My undergraduate education was from Millersville University, uh, three degrees, po- political science, psychology, master's in school psychology. Subsequent to that, Pennsylvania certification as a school psychologist, which I've been for almost 20 years. After that, I got my educational leadership master's degree and principal certificate from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I earned my doctorate degree from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, American Psychological Association approved program, one of the top psychology training programs on the East Coast. Six degrees and all, and anyone can lift up a telephone and call and verify those degrees. So when, when you see folks uh, who, who, who question uh, your degrees, your response? It's because my narrative is a whole lot different from the average mainstream black scholar. I don't parrot the narrative that the American social order wants black scholars to parrot. I tell the truth. I don't scratch unless I itch and I don't dance unless I like the music. And because they're not used to having someone with a traditional education, posit non-traditional views, people will automatically start to question his credentials. How did he get this far believing what he believes in? Well, you have to play the spook who sat by the door. When I got accepted into those three universities, they didn't know what I believed in. They didn't know what I stood for. But as time went on, it revealed itself. But I'm unapologetically African, so I'm not really concerned with what people think about me personally. Um, I have a job to do, and that is to awaken the sleeping consciousness of African people, not just in America, but all across the world. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, you said during the interview, you said that uh, Mandarin was one of the official languages in South Africa. Yes, sir. And others said you were dead wrong. Yes, because I didn't clarify that I was speaking of it being an official language in the public school system of South Africa. So I should have clarified that Mandarin is an official language in the Republic of South Africa's school system. (laughs) It's not an official language in the country. It's an official language in the school system. And I was speaking of schools, but I didn't clarify that. So that's my responsibility. Uh, Also, uh, during that particular interview, uh, you you talked about a a variety of issues that also uh, got people uh, talking. One of them uh, dealt with your views on interracial marriage yes sir and so uh and and so explain that for folks who did not hear uh certainly simply put any black man who is with a woman who's not 
an African herself is going to have a difficult time getting respect from me. I believe black men need to be with black women. The black family is under attack. Only one out of every four black women gets married. The black woman is last likely to get married. She's the last married, the first divorced. We have what? Two thirds of our children being raised by working class and impoverished single black female led house homes. The destruction of a nation begins in the home of its families. And if we want to save black people, we have to save the black family. So, and in order to do that, black men have to commit themselves to black women. So I, so when you talk about not getting your respect, so which so if that's the case, you're saying uh, Senator Barack Obama, excuse me, President Barack Obama to get your respect because his dad uh, married a white woman. Oh, not at all. Would, uh, would Harry Belafonte? Not at all. I want to be very clear about something. As Pan-Africanists, the product of an interracial union is an African. I have heroes who are biracial. Some of the grandfathers of Pan-Africanism were of mixed racial ancestry. You don't blame a child for how they got here. But I'm asking you this here. Harry Belafonte is a white wife. No respect for him? City would party. be very. It doesn't city, matter. It city, doesn't matter your social status. So no, 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 no. I didn't say social. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a one who put the work. Right, in. but you put so, him so, out. No, no, no. I'm asking you. So mm-hmm. Harry Belafonte. Yes, sir. Sidney Poitier, Julian Bond, Vernon Jordan. And you're said, naming all them to say what? No, these are all African American mm-hmm. men who have who have done some good things. No, who married white women. But you said you no, any any black man who marries a white woman will not get your respect. Can I respond? Yeah, go ahead. And what I'm telling you is this: I don't care who you name. I don't care how much work you did for black people. Your greatest commitment to black people is being committed to a black woman. It is still a contradiction. No matter how much you think you did for the struggle, if you really were concerned with black people, you would have committed yourself to a black woman. So it doesn't matter how successful they are. It doesn't matter how great you may claim them to be. At the end of the day, you didn't think enough about your own people to marry a woman who looks like you. Frederick Douglass. Yes, sir. An ancestor of mine. So when you say ancestor, what does that mean? Let me break it down. Because, again, some have said you tried to claim mm-hmm. that you are de- a descendant of Frederick Douglass. Okay, so let's deal with that. So hold on one second. Here's a statement from the family. Uh, let me go ahead and read this, please. Um, the family of Frederick Douglass has received numerous inquiries about Umar Johnson questioning his relationship to Frederick Douglass. There have also been questions about his legitimacy of his Ph.D. and the handling of the donations he's received for his school that he is promoting. We can tell you with 100 percent certainty that he is not a descendant of Frederick Douglass. With that being said, Mr. Johnson is very careful not to build himself as a descendant, but he doesn't correct people when they refer to him in this way. He calls himself a blood relative, which is a nebulous reference designed to make people think he is a descendant. We have researched his explanation of being a blood relative to the great abolitionist. Some of the information he provides is accurate, but an extremely important piece of his explanation with regards to a documented relative of Frederick Douglass is false. The information he recites correctly is from the public record, so his knowledge of our family ancestry is far from definitive proof. Two things there. One, he's not a descendant of Frederick Douglass. Okay. I would concur with that. All right. But then, two, you also heard that some of the things he says is correct. So the question becomes, he's either related or he's not. Okay. So are you you related? I'm about to answer your question. Allow me to do that. I am a blood relative of Frederick Douglass. My name is on the family true. We have a family reunion every two years. What they're talking about, I want to make sure you're clear. They're talking about whether or not I come through the loin of Frederick Douglass, which I do not, nor have I ever claimed. 
Okay? I have more videos on YouTube than any other scholar. I speak around the world more than any other scholar. Show me where I've ever said I was a descendant. I've only claimed one thing, kinsman. How am I kinsman? If you ever read any of the autobiographies of Frederick Douglass, he talks about growing up on Tuckahoe Creek with Cousin Stephen. Cousin Stephen is Stephen Bailey, Dr. Umar Johnson's four times great-grandfather, whose grave I just visited last week. I go every year. Okay, that's my four times great-grandfather. He married my four times great-grandmother, Caroline Wilson Bailey. From that union came my three times great-grandfather, George Washington Bailey, the first black public school teacher on Eastern Shore, Maryland. He married Grandmom Annie. They they had Grandma Caroline. Okay, she had Grandma Vivian. Grandma Vivian married a Spanish-speaking Cuban immigrant, Grandpa Cicero. They had Grandma Ida, who's still alive, who married James Johnson, who had my father Jamal, who married my mama Barbara, and from that union I was born. I am a blood of belly. I am not married in. What they're talking about is strictly descendancy, something I've never claimed. Am I akin? Do I directly come from the loin of the first cousin and potentially half-brother of Frederick Douglass? And the reason I say potentially, the slave master who owned our family, a white man named Aaron Anthony, raped Frederick's mother and raped Stephen's mother, my ancestor. And there's significant evidence to suggest that. Some people could still argue, though, that they were not brothers because it's not conclusive. Fine, throw that out. I'm still a kinsman because I come through the blood of his first cousin. You talk about, again, respect. You respect. I don't talk about respect. No, I get no, tremendous no, respect no, from no, my people. I, I, I'm not talking about that. Um, do you respect Frederick Douglass? Obviously, yes. But he had a white wife. He did. So... I, and that's what you should trust. I'm going to clarify. Why, why, why is that an issue? Why, I mean, why is that? If if you put in the work mm -hmm. and you have the history, who, who cares who you marry? I already answered that question. And I told you, I don't care how much work you put in. If you don't commit yourself to a black woman, ultimately, you wasn't totally committed to the struggle. Even Frederick Douglass. Even Frederick Douglass has to be criticized, as I did on The Breakfast Club. Now, it has to be put in context. He didn't marry the white woman until he was an old man after his wife, Anna Murray Douglass, of 50 years, a blue-black chocolate woman through whom all my cousins were born. He was an old man when he did it, but nonetheless, he did it. And yes, he has to be criticized on that because a black man needs to be with a black woman. And it is a contradiction. I don't care how much work you think you've done for black folks to not commit yourself to a black woman. Oh, tell you one second. I got more questions when we come back. I would argue the reason black men marry white women is because they wish they were white themselves. And having the white man's prize, his queen, is a psychological symbol to myself that I am equal to him. We're back with Dr. Umar Johnson. Uh, in one of the, in that particular statement, uh, the family also addressed this here. Uh, you talked about taking over uh, the buildings or the land of a black of a black school that was shut down. Yes, HBCU sir. St. Paul's College. Uh, and you were raising money for it. First of all, how much money has been raised, and what's the status of that project? Well, St. Paul's has been sold. Approximately three to five months ago, I was told by the auction company. Uh, in charge of the sale that it was been sold to a developer. So how much money was raised? What the people people gave, all the people gave. How much was raised and what's the status of that? $700,000 and the status is we're still looking for a school and the status is my start date for FDMG will be 821-18 or if at all, it may be delayed to 821-19, which is the anniversary of the Nat Turner War. We say looking for a school, why not start a charter school? I mean, you can start a school. Because charter schools are owned by the state. And I'm a Pan-Africanist. I believe what is to be done for black people must be done by black people. Why do I want a charter school? So you want so you want a private school? Exactly. Independent Lauren. school. Lauren. Um, so the question of interracial marriage, <laughs> yes, I mean, come on, man. 
You're too smart for this. We got 43. We got 43 million black people in this country. And that means over what? 190 million white people. You're gonna sit here and say that if yeah, you like got a black person, black person, white person get married, a black person, white person get married, one can't understand the other person's struggle. You've seen, not you've seen Tim Wise, right? You've seen it's Reverend Wallace. You've seen white people who understand racism Sist very well. That doesn't the mean they're going to thing, do anything about it. The other thing it. that is obviously well, true well, is they understand racism when you see things. Like the murder of Medgar Evers, like the murder and, of Martin Luther King. They understand and, racism. And what fine. did they do they about it? They understand us gaining just fine, and that's why murder happened. Based on right? what? So the idea that somehow a white person can't understand our struggle? I no could way. care less what they understand. I'm no asking way. you, what have they done systematically he already to told you that. the opportunities he of white folks? He that. did not tell oh, me yes, that. Oh, yes, you did tell me that. He did not that. tell me that. You're going to tell me that guys like Tim Wise and Reverend Wallace don't understand racism? What about race in Tim Wise? They don't understand racism. He articulates racism. So what has he done? There are no white people that understand race in America. There's no white person. There's no white people understand race in America. There's not a white person. Them going to There's not a white person in America who has ever worked to systematically eliminate the white privilege that they benefit from vis-a-vis -vis your oppression. You're you a liar. You know, Eugene, you know, Eugene, 190 so, million so, people in America. Eugene. In so, so, oh, 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 we're not going to go there. We're not. I have called me a liar, and you're cool. Well, it's a fact that watch you're lying. You it's a fact that you're lying. It's a fact that you're lying. I understand you. To say that, 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 we can talk to one another and disagree, but I do not use racial epithets against and black that's people. Fine, but he called no, me no, a liar. No, 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 no. So I, no, no. Ra ra racial epithets will not be used on this show. And that's fine. By anybody. But how we talk no, no, to each other. No, you can say whatever you want, but no racial epithets will be used on this show about black people to black people. Amen. Your question. So, from your paradigm, from your perspective, civil rights acts. Isn't an act of, of white folk stepping up on behalf of black folk. Current criminal justice reform legislation movement isn't a current act of white folk stepping on behalf of black folk. Folk that funded the civil rights movement in the, in the 50s and 60s isn't an act of white folk stepping up on behalf of black folk. I'm sorry, as an American, because I define myself as an American, sure an African American. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I live in a country that moves forward together. And I say that as a Republican. We move forward together. Yes, we have individual struggle. Yes, we have struggles. Yes, about we have, yes, no, no, no. Yes, we have, we have, we have, we have, we have, systematic, we have, we have, we have, systematic struggles and together as a country moving forward to defeat those struggles. Really? So, based on what you said, I want you to give me examples of white folk, not individuals, but systematically. Like excuse me. Why can't they be individuals? One second. I know you can't wait. One second finish. answer. But one finish. second answer. Can I finish? Go, go. Okay, I'm going. Okay? You cannot name anything systematically done ever in this country by white people to equal the playing field for black folks. The Civil Rights Act, Congress literally sits behind us. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Are you aware? Are you aware? White people are proud of you, son. Let me ask Scott Bolden. I think the terminology and the narrative being used is a little misleading, not from you, but from this dialogue right here. You know, it's one thing to sympathize with the struggle. It's another one to be to empathize with the struggle. Very different. When you talk about marriage being a political choice and that one of the things arguments that you made that I tend to agree with is that 
that a, if you don't marry a black woman, then she can never support and comfort and value your day-to-day -day struggle as a black man. Uh, that being said, uh, I do think that the, the level of the rhetoric that you use in regard to your pan-Africanism uh, is, um, is, is difficult for many of us, quote, in the mainstream to get our arms around. But this issue about black men and white women in the civil rights struggle is not a new discussion. My mother was a civil rights activist in Chicago, and she would often uh, complain privately that, one, you can't sleep black, you can't sleep white and talk black, Thank if you, you will. And Thank that's you. always been in the American struggle, American, African-American struggle with ourselves. Yes, the other thing is that we struggle with our own psychology about okay. self-love and okay. otherwise. <laughs> and if we can get our arms around that, that does make sense. Okay. But you would have to say that you know and, 190 and, million and, people. But you're and, being too... One, one second. You would have to claim that. No, go ahead, respond. Go ahead. And I agree with, 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 with my brother's Scott. comments, mm -hmm. Brother Scott. He brought up the Civil Rights Bill, but what he did not talk about in relation to the Civil Rights Bill is there were two words included in that bill that ultimately served to take away from black people what that bill was intended to deliver. They added gender and they added sexual orientation. And as a result of that, white women and homosexuals have been able to strip black America from the intended gains of the Civil Rights Act. So there was still racism in that bill if you will study that history. So Umar, your question was, did anyone, had anyone black ever systematically done, I mean, no. has anyone white ever systematically Not done anything? Systematically. Systematically. White America. So LBJ, LBJ would be the answer for that. No, I want you that's to the government. No, I don't think you that's heard the question. That's a systematic move. No, you didn't hear the question. I what has, no, you fine. did not. No, yeah, you I didn't. Did. Yeah, you're I did. so quick to defend white folks <laughs> yeah, that you're not listening. No, I'm not trying to defend white folks. 45 seconds, <laughs> so reset the question and give the answer. Okay. Got 45 right, seconds. Let's get an answer. The question was, mm -hmm. what has white America done? Right. Not individuals. <laughs> Systematically, not individuals. can I... You Why won't even let me finish. Yeah, because well, you're that in love with white folks. You won't even let me finish. Point on finish, finish literally like three times. 20 seconds. Like three times. <laughs> there is no bigger <laughs> system than anyone. 20 seconds, I'll finish. The no, US and in 20 seconds, I would say that the panel that you have here, <laughs> who are extremely intelligent, do mm. not represent... The everyday black man and woman struggles, and then because of that, they can articulate. And you represent 43 million people right, in this country? Well, I just want to make a comment about that conversation. It was a hot mess, but there were some things I picked up out of it. Now, Scott Bolden, who spoke last, he was the third person on the panelist. I thought the way he put things out there and talked about his mother's comments, as I just mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the black women always talk about that. That is no new discussion. But it was really interesting to me that the other two panelists, they weren't even open to what Dr. Johnson was saying. And the funny thing is, this was something that was done over three years ago. Now, in 2021, I really, really wonder what those other two panelists uh, feel about systematic racism now, because systematic racism has been amplified in the last three years for various reasons. And unfortunately, the young lady who just kept talking about individuals maybe get it now of what he was talking about as systematic and departments and companies and judicial systems and all that. I don't think she can have the exact same comments and be true to herself that she had three years ago, considering what we keep seeing in America 
And right now, as of this day, we are seeing systematic racism being encumbered among many, many Republican-led legislatures to suppress the black and people of color vote. And it just seems like no matter what we talk about in America, especially, politics is somehow linked to it. So as I mentioned always, I am open to talk about things that people send to me. And after this person being sent to me and me doing my research, it was it was a lot because as you heard from the beginning, there's a lot of people that don't believe in him. A lot of people that think he's to the extreme and a lot of people that think he's right on on point. And so I hope that this episode will give people of all races, but especially people of color and African-American descent, some um, something to think about, because right now we have to adjust once again to America, but we also have to be true to ourselves. And I always tell people, especially within the last year, since we've been kind of stuck in the house with the pandemic, I always say to people when we talk about politics, race, racism, systematic things, I always tell people when the opportunity comes, when we can be united for the same common goal, you have to take that opportunity. And I just want to say this, whatever you believe in, I don't care what the subject is, but as an African-American in 2021, all I ask you to do is sit back Reflect on your life, the experiences that you had, people you know, family and friends have had, and look at the opportunity to speak up for change right now. Because I feel, if not now, when? Because everybody isn't against us, but systematically, it's been so many decades of being against us, a lot of people just accept what's going on. But there are a lot of people fighting back with us to help make change. And one thing that I do agree with, there's a lot of things I agree with, with what Dr. Johnson said. And there's a lot of things I'm not too sure about and disagree with. But one thing I do agree with is that we have to be proud of who we are as African-Americans, because I'm just going to make a comment. I say to a lot of my friends, and I mention, if you're a regular listener, I mention this all the time. I have a substantial amount of friends that are non-black. I'll just say that. And I have a lot of friends. Trust me, I do have a lot of friends. And we always have these conversations about race because to me, you can't learn about a different race if you don't talk about it. And even if you don't agree with what's being said, you can't say you haven't been told or you don't know. And one of the things I always say to my friends that are non-black, when they talk about immigration in a negative way and the border and all these other things about race, because we openly talk about it. I remind them that the African-American race is the only, and I will say it three times, only, only, only race in America that was forced to be here. Everybody else chose to come here. Everybody. If you go back into your ancestry and you're not African-American, your great, great, 
maybe not even that far removed, maybe just great grandparent came over here from a different country, from Italy, from Ireland, from Scotland. From, I mean, you can just go on and on and on. African-Americans are the only race that was forced to be here. And not only were we the only race forced to be come here, we helped build this country. Look at the White House. Who you think built it? I was told slaves. <laughs> if it's somebody else, let me know. Look at all the, when we do Black History Month, yes, we get the shortest month in the year. But if you study all the legendary people that you may not even know were Black, look at what we've created to make basic everyday living comfortable for all people. So remember that when you start talking about the African-American race, we are the only race that was forced to come here. And so I think that right now the movement of being who we are, being proud of who we are, is a positive movement. And I want people who are not African-American to want to learn more about us, to understand our struggles. Unfortunately, George Floyd's incident and his killing in front of our eyes, murder in front of our eyes, may some people think, oh my goodness, this is really happening. Although we all know it's been happening. He wasn't the first. Unfortunately, he wasn't the last. And it took COVID to make people kind of glued to the TV to see what we experience every single day. So we need to come together because no one's going anywhere. We're going to be here. And unlike in the 60s, a lot of us are way more educated. We do research and we find out our rights and speak up for them. So I just wanted to say thank you, Big Brother D. I ain't going to put your name out there, but thank you for um, tuning me on to Dr. Omar, excuse me, Umar Johnson. And as I said, you can like him, love him, hate him, whatever. But he calls himself unapologetically African and he's holding to his truth. So I hope if nothing else, this episode and these interviews taught you a little bit about the African-American culture and you can learn to do positive things to help uh, help us. We help ourselves to stay strong and progress through this struggle we are experiencing called uh, 2021 America. So with that being said, I am going to ask you guys to follow me on Twitter at Advocacy Ladies. That's capital A as in advocacy, capital L as in ladies. And just like someone sent me this uh, article, I would love to hear from you if there's something else you want me to talk about. It doesn't matter what the subject is. If it's inappropriate, I won't do it. But if I find it appropriate and helpful of any race, any culture, any experiences that is social, culturally, politically, and newsworthy, definitely reach out to us. You can give us a call on our calling line at 404-855-7723, or you can always send us an email at podcasthostshaypate19 at gmail.com. That's in all small letters. And you know, I appreciate you. You can find us on every podcast app from Google Google Play, uh, Apple iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, Alexa, TuneIn, and of course, Podbean. So I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate you. And I want you to definitely turn on your notifications so you can get all of the episodes as soon as they're 
are published. And definitely go back to the previous episodes while I'm in hiatus. I'm going to take the month of April off to kind of maybe revamp the show and just just learn some things. I got a brand new handheld that's coming soon. And I'm excited because I did a lot of research on the handhelds. And Zoom uh, seems to be one of the top ones. So I ordered me one. So I'm excited to see the quality of that. And that'll allow me to get in the streets without taking all my equipment with me and get more clarity. Because as I said, getting clarity is my biggest concern. I want you to understand what's being said and not have it sounding muffled. Because in all honesty, engineering the podcast is no joke. It is just not record and post at all. So (laughs) I like to as you, as I always say at the end of my episode, ask you the question, what do you have to say? Thank you for listening.